1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Mini nuclear weapons. It's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? The the smallest version of the world's most destructive weapon. Yet uh, it's become a raging debate in the American foreign policy community and defense community right now because the Trump administration has for the first time put one of these mini nuclear weapons on a submarine, a move that some say is likely to help the United States in the event of a war with Russia or China, and a move that others say could possibly doom us all. If that same conflict happened today on worldly part of the Vox media podcast network, we are going to talk about this debate. We're going to tell you what the stakes are and we're going to tell you literally what a mini nuke is and why you should care. I'm Zach Beecham. Here's always with Jen Williams and Alex Warden.
2: Hey, let's go.
0: Yeah, Alex is very, very amped in case you can't tell. He loves talking about uh, weird destructive defense policies and weapons. It's just like his favorite thing and we haven't done it very much on the show. Uh, so, Alex, I hope you're happy. Very. Are you happy? Jen, are you happy? I'm so happy. Okay, I'm not as happy as I, Alex is, or maybe you. I don't know. I can't tell.
3: I'm definitely into talking about this.
2: I love existential crises. It's like this and pandemics is all I can talk about. Okay, <laughs> all
0: right. We missed our shot to talk pandemics, uh, so let's talk about this instead. Alex, what is a
2: mini-nuke? So, it is technically called a low-yield nuclear weapon. Yeah, but we're just going to call them a mini-nuke, to be c- clear. Yes, we are going to call it mini-nuke.
0: I uh, wouldn't call them mini-nuke. <laughs>
3: even
2: So, the one we're happens. talking about. It's <laughs> Austin Powers. It is.
0: Which is not a good movie in retrospect. It's very bad.
3: <laughs> so low-yield nuclear weapons, <laughs> do From tell. From Austin
2: Powers to the awesome powers of a mini nuclear weapon.
3: Boo. It,
2: it was worth a shot. So, this is the, the, the name of this is the W76-2. That's the last time we'll say that. But this weapon is basically, it has a f- roughly, according to experts, a five kiloton yield, which is about, think of it this way, a third of the destructive power of the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima, right? So it's not like, when we say mini-nuke, it's not like it's a very small explosion. It is a smaller explosion, uh, but it is still incredibly destructive. And as Zach mentioned, we put it for the first time ever on a nuclear-carrying submarine, uh, which experts believe is the Tennessee. We've put it on an intercontinental missile, so it can go far, right? And... it's a big deal because so far we've only really had these on airplanes. This gives us a new capability um, to strike and, and almost in a more stealthy way and avoid defenses. So that's—and and because of that, people are freaking out for the reasons that you described, and we will get into it right, right down the line.
3: Quick question. Yeah. So, mini-nuke, I just want to kind of get a better sense of the destructive power here. So how would this compare to, like, a really big conventional bomb? So, like, the Moab, the mother of all bombs that, like— Big, giant bomb we dropped in Afghanistan. How does that compare roughly? So
2: the yield of the mother of all bombs was 11 tons. Okay. This w this, this mini-nuke is 5 kilotons. Okay. So That
3: seems bigger.
2: Much bigger. Got it. Again, it is— It seems bigger.
0: You know the metric
2: system, right? Again, it is— it
3: seems. Again, <laughs> the,
2: the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima was roughly 15, 16 kilotons. So this one is about a third of its destructive power.
3: Okay, got and
2: it. The, and— and The last technical thing I'll mention about it is the reason it is minier is basically with bombs like these, they will have what's called the primary and secondary explosion. What this has done has turned off the secondary. So there's actually like a smaller, bigger. The first explosion is smaller, but that triggers off the bigger second explosion. There is no bigger second explosion with this bomb.
0: Got it. So this came about as a result of, uh, I believe, the Nuclear Posture Review is the name that the Trump administration initiated two years ago. Yeah, Exactly. The argument that the Trump administration makes in that in that document for doing what just happened is is what exactly?
2: So we'll link to it in the show notes, but what it says is that so the grand theory here is that between a conventional weapon, right? So like the mother of all bombs, a regular bomb, and a big nuclear weapon, there's a lot of space in between. And that countries like Russia or China, whoever, could exploit that space and and do whatever they kinda wanted to us, or at least provoke us in many ways, and they are not deterred from doing those things because they know that we would not use the big nuclear weapon. And so having a mini-nuke, in this case, they would say makes it more likely that we might respond because it is not as destructive and therefore actually increases the deterrence value and so russia may go oh wait there is a chance they use a smaller nuke against us and so we are we will no longer do xyz provocative thing because america might respond and will no longer be as self-deterred by using this mini nuke Got it.
0: To be clear, Russia isn't like a hypothetical random example that you're talking about here, right? It's – this is a response to an understanding of a new Russian strategic doctrine that may may or may not exist, right? There's sort of some debate about this in which they would in fact use a nuclear weapon – uh, as part of a conflict with the West, not to destroy cities, but to gain battlefield advantage.
2: Yeah. So this, uh, this strategy is called escalate to de-escalate. And uh, the way to summarize this is in a conflict, Russia, many experts believe that Russia would use a nuclear weapon first or early on. And they have mini nukes too, which in parlance are called tactical nukes. And so there's a belief that Russia may use one of these uh, early on, and, and try to deter the United States from acting further. So
3: escalate to deescalate. So you got to get up to get down. Pretty much. Got it. Uh,
2: <laughs> now, as you mentioned, there is a massive debate about this. Uh, this is escalate to deescalate is not in any official Russian like military doctrine. Uh, in fact, I was at an event last year in which the Russian ambassador to the U.S. vehemently denied that Russia has this strategy, um, so, so but, why do we
3: think that they do? Because
2: it's it's a weird thing, but the the TLDR here. Is that because Russia sort of thought about doing this in the Cold War, and we sort of thought about doing this in the Cold War? That therefore we're extrapolating, thinking, well, surely Russia still has this kind of mentality. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like that's why. Some, that's yes, part that of does
0: it. that does sound ridiculous. <laughs> if that's the justification for this policy, then it's already starting out on shaky grounds, right? It's conjecture about Russian security policy with no grounding in like an actual document or intelligence or anything. It's just like maybe I don't know. But
3: I mean, if you've seen Doctor Strangelove, that that kind of defined the Cold War, right? Like, like, the, they made fun of, you know, the missile gap, which was this thing that kind of defined the U.S. and Soviet relations of the Cold War. Of Like, well, you know, we don't want them to have a strategic advantage or strategic or strategic superiority. Um, and, you know, Dr. Strangelove obviously parodied that by saying there was a mineshaft gap, that we were going to have a mineshaft where we could live and survive a nuclear winter uh, and, you know— if they're going to have one, we have to have one. So, yeah, it's the same kind of thing, right? It's the, it's the missile cap.
2: Exactly. Just to get out of the jargon hell that is the nuclear field, when you're saying strategic, what are you really referring to? Uh,
3: large weapons yeah, and exactly. the ability to use them. Yeah, no, I just
2: and I want to be clear about that <laughs> yeah. because I think, you know, when some people think about strategy, they're like, well, how do I, you know, what to do to get whatever goal? In this case, we're talking about big, bad nuclear weapons.
0: Every time we talk about nuclear weapons, I really like I, I start to understand feminist international relations a lot more because the language is so like masculinized and aggressive. 100%. It's it's the the like sort of psychosexual stuff going on here. Anyway, sorry, the that's a the tangent. Missiles. I like all
3: my nuclear <laughs> weapons to be pink and frilly. Okay, so the argument for right. is pretty clear, right? Right. That Russia could use these and it's good for deterrence. I'm guessing, I don't know, just maybe knowing you, Zach, and knowing <laughs> you, Alex, that, that there's a difference of perspective, at least. I'm not to say that you agree or, or you disagree, but I'm guessing Zach in particular has a different perspective. Would you like to lay out the case against <laughs> and why you find this utterly terrifying?
0: I, I would love to make the argument against. Um, it's not like a strongly held belief, but it does seem to me to be dangerous. And the reasons why, I, I read a really good piece this morning in War of the Rocks from friend of Vox, Vipin Narang, who is an MIT professor and an expert on nuclear weapons, Uh, Vipin's argument is that this creates what he calls a discrimination problem, this particular putting it on a submarine. What that means is uh, the missile that you would fire in a conflict to deliver these mini-nukes, it's not like a cruise missile, which looks different from a big nuclear missile of the type that can destroy cities. It looks just like one of those when fired from a submarine, and our submarines have the capacity to do that. Not only that – But firing one missile is not clear enough as to what you're doing because one missile often contains multiple warheads. And the multiple warheads could go off and deliver like a million kilotons and flatten several cities or nuclear facilities. So if you're on the receiving end of this small American nuclear weapon, again, small in relative terms, this missile starts coming towards you from a submarine. You're Russia. And you're thinking, "Okay, uh, what do we do here? Because if you don't respond immediately with your own nuclear weapons, it's possible that this is a really big strike from the Americans that will blow up your entire nuclear deterrent. And you lose it and you have to respond now or at least blow up a large portion of it. Maybe it's just a small one. Maybe it actually is a big full-scale American retaliation and and you just don't know and you can't afford to make the wrong guess if you're the Russians. So you have to respond as if – it's a giant, massive, like, world-ending
3: attack. Right. So the discrimination problem being it's hard to discriminate between the A mini-nuke kinds... and a big-nuke. Right. <laughs> exactly. So not discrimination in the way that you probably think of it, but in terms of, like, figuring things out, discrimination.
0: Right. And so this means that any – even just, like, putting this on a submarine makes escalation more likely. But the, the fact that we might use it and we might think we're sending a particular signal during a conflict with a great power – uh, would send the opposite signal and get all of us killed.
3: So what if Trump were to just tweet, don't worry, Russia, it's just a mini-nuke? Uh,
2: Incoming!
0: Yeah. Uh, the, yes, that would definitely work. Would that They, be would, believe, they would
2: believe that right. if we were
0: nuking them.
2: Right, exactly. And not get as mad. No, this is—I'm actually 95% persuaded persuaded by this argument, uh, and, and mostly because of the discrimination problem. Um, also, I just to take it a step further, like, okay, so the U.S. chose— f- 5 kilotons versus 15 kilotons or something whatever like okay is Russia going to be happier about that right like i a, a nuclear explosion is a nuclear explosion period right. end of story uh yes you could have killed more people you could have uh, caused more radiation but the politics are such i would argue that any government that gets bombed by a nuclear weapon has to respond pretty Freaking forcefully, um, and so I'm. I'm. I just kind of don't believe in the like measured responses based on the kiloton of the bomb.
3: Yeah, I mean that's the big question, right? Is that the, there's this the nuclear threshold, right? And the nuclear taboo is like a, a a famous kind of concept that's been talked about in political science and deterrence literature, as um, that there is a taboo on using any kind of nuclear weapon. So the question is would that nuclear taboo hold if it's a low-yield nuke? Like, does the fact that it's still nuclear technology, that it's still a nuclear weapon, fundamentally still put you into that category of, no, we have to respond in kind with a nuclear weapon, as opposed to we drop a very large conventional bomb on, you know, Moscow? And also, sorry to everyone in Russia, we're not actually joking about, like, bombing people in Russia. I understand this is very serious, and we're talking at about, about it at a very theoretical level, but... We all understand this is very horrific and very real terms in, in terms yeah. of possibility in human life. Um, so I don't want you to think we're being too flip with that. But if we were to drop a conventional weapon, you know, would Russia or you know, or China respond with a nuclear weapon, or would they think, no, that's that's a taboo we don't want to cross? So we would just respond in kind with a conventional weapon. And I think that's the question: is do low yield nukes still meet the nuclear taboo threshold? Right?
2: Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I think that that's. Uh that, that is one of the bigger issues, and I, I, I guess I just—I am of the belief— it's at these moments where I, I have trouble believing, like, rationality of governments, because in one case, it's almost more rational to respond with a bigger nuclear weapon if you're bond with a mini-nuke. Um, in another sense, it's also kind of rational to not, because if—well, if you're Russia in this case, you do know that if you go into a nuclear war with the United States, you're probably going to end up not losing, maybe, and be too strong, but everyone's not going to end up well, right? Mutual so, sure destruction. Exactly. Right. So, like— It's in. – I'm just – I would just be kind of like – setting off a mini-nuke leads to the obviously, you know, con side of this argument, which is you could start a nuclear war
0: and this would be a problem. It's (laughs) not even just like an issue of if we use it during a conflict on its own, right? There's also a question of announcing all of these new uses and theories and and, uh, practical technologies and deployments for nuclear weapons – Uh, has the potential to set off a version of a nuclear arms race where if the US is starting to do all of these different kind of innovative and aggressive things, other countries will have an incentive, most notably Russia and China, to do similar sorts of things that could make nuclear use more likely in the future. So even just the act of declaring that we're putting these these mini-nukes on our submarines is one that could theoretically destabilize – Global politics, right? Like, not in an immediate catastrophic sense. I'm not trying to be doomsayery about it. I'm just saying that there is not only a risk in the event of a war with Russia and China, which is unlikely to begin with anytime in the foreseeable future, it's that the act of doing so raises the risk of conflict on its own in a very, very, very small, but I would say measurable way. Right, well, not like, really measurable, but like which I noticeable.
3: Think, you know, that also gets into Trump's broader approach to the nuclear arsenal kind of in general, Um, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, uh, but, you know, the end of of New Start, right, the end of these missile uh, nuclear treaties that we've had with Russia going back to the Cold War, um, you know, when John Bolton was in the White House, he is not anymore, you may have noticed this week, um, but he was very skeptical of arms control agreements and was, you know, trying to pull the U.S. out of these um, various agreements. So, it's not just this, right? If you take this one, you know, isolated issue of the of the submarine low yield nuke, maybe that alone wouldn't kick off a, a nuclear arms race potentially. But when you put it together with the entire rest of, you know, also going to say that we're going to, you know, do other issues, uh field other missiles and weapons that we haven't before under treaties. Uh and then you hear Trump's statements on wanting to, you know, just rebuild the nuclear arsenal in general, that kind of collectively, I think, very much has the potential to set off a nuclear arms race.
2: Let me give just a little bit of credence to the Trump administration's argument here, because as I mentioned before, I'm 95% persuaded by the arguments that you guys have said. The 5% that I'm on Trump's side here is, well, his team. I don't think he's thinking that deeply about it, but— like, we're kind of already in an arms race, and you can, and the right. causation is, is is hard to find. Right. But, like, you know, Russia is claiming to build a nuclear-powered missile that is unstoppable. Russia has built an incredible missile arsenal that would make it very hard for the United States to, if in the event of a large-scale war with China, for us to kind of, you know, get involved. We start, sort of— the,
0: the missile has nuclear weapons and also runs on nuclear power?
2: Yeah, that's the theory. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, it, no one believes that it's true. But okay, like, so it doesn't <laughs> run on AA
3: batteries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, but like Probably that's
2: smart. That's that's. But anyway, uh, yeah. And then on top, of that's maneuverable. It's a whole thing. Anyway, um, and like I, there are capabilities that we are missing. Like we do. And they,
3: Russia, just to be clear, sorry to cut you off, but Russia does have like way more nuclear weapons than we do. Still, right? Not way more.
2: It's it's close, but they do have more. Okay. It's not like. At, the, at that point it's like marginal returns but like, right, it, right but yeah uh, they do have I think numerically more but it's also aging et cetera et cetera. right um but like look Russia has tactical n- nukes as well um you know we do have a thousand but they're on airplanes and they and it's hard to beat missile defenses um depending on where you're and it's, it's hard to beat air defenses as well and so having a stealthy sub with the ability to kind of shoot this, mini-nuke from any point and almost at any point in the world is probably a a good thing to have. Um,
3: if they have it, we should have it, essentially. Kind is of, argument. yeah. I, I mean,
2: I, I yeah. No,
3: I, I definitely understand that in terms of, like, traditional deterrence theory. That's a very standard right. argument, right? Like, the realist argument of, like, you know, nuclear deterrence is like, well, you know, if you're going to have the big, bad weapons, I need to have the big, bad weapons, too, so that you can't control me and you can't dominate.
0: But me what away. if instead nobody had them? What if we had international
2: I,
3: arms I, control I, I agreements? Wish we, yeah.
2: Yeah. I wish yeah. we lived in that
3: world, well, too. So but. that's what I want to get into a little bit later is, is you know, where we could talk about it now. But the Trump administration's policy is really interesting because when you look at Trump's statements themselves, he's been super contradictory, even on the campaign trail yeah. in, in 2016. He's really contradictory in his views. On nuclear weapons, you know, and in one breath, he'll say that, you know, they're an existential threat to humanity and they're, you know, one of the scariest things. And, you know, he talks about, I think, his uncle, uh, you know, explaining nuclear weapons to him when he was younger and that scaring the hell out of him. He seems
2: genuinely frightened by them. Yeah, but
3: in the same breath, he'll say, but I think, you know— and you know, nuclear proliferation is bad. But in the same breath, they'll say, well, Japan should maybe get their own nukes in South Korea. And so Saudi. Like,
0: he said he you right. at one point. Yeah. So,
3: you know, it, it's kind of interesting because he seems to actually understand, Zach, your perspective, which, you know, I also share kind of uh, in the middle. Um, but yes, these weapons are terrifying. And it would be great if we had none of them. I think the, the realistic – you know, point of view that he probably has. and And the one that I actually share is that the cat's kind of out of the bag, right? Um, we're at the point where lots of countries have nuclear weapons. we could have international arms agreements that could um, you know restrict them and, you know, cut down on the number that we have, like we did during the Cold War. But right now, it doesn't seem like that's where the world is is moving. And so the argument there is, you know, well, then we should have them too, obviously the u s. Yeah. could the way in moving us that direction is, is the other argument.
0: To be clear, I wasn't advocating for unilateral and immediate disarmament. What, I was, what I was saying was like these different and newfangled nuclear technologies that people are developing. Uh, we don't need to be developing new ways to blow up the world. And right. we could possibly limit it to the things that we have right now. In any event, we're going to talk about more and all of this after a short break. Be right back.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Worldly, folks. We've been talking about the Trump administration's decision to put a mini nuclear weapon on a submarine. And we've mostly been talking about it in the context of a potential U.S. war with Russia and U.S. strategic doctrine relative to that country – But it also seems to figure uh, relatively prominently now that we've decided to do this in the way that we think and talk about potential conflicts and competition with China. Um, So Alex is our resident um, nuclear tech nerd. Uh, Talk a little bit about how this relates to US-China thinking, war planning, Pentagon stuff.
2: And I prefer end-of-the-world enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so obviously China is worried about America's military might, and they're worried about what the United States could do in the event that these two countries go to war, as there are many experts who worry that just historically the number two, as it rises, tends to challenge the number one, and you start mm, fighting. The Thucydides trap. Yes, exactly. Yay. Yes, let's not go further into that. But one thing that China has done very uh, intently is what they call anti-axis area denial, so A2AD, which is not a Star Wars character. <laughs> um, but so, in
3: regular human words, what does that mean, Alice? Yeah, exactly.
2: So it's basically saying that, like, as. It is trying to stop or at least defend against as American warships and warplanes approach that it has this sort of missile system that can shoot them down and make it very hard for the United States to stage, let's say, an aircraft carrier off of China's shores or start, you know, sending fighter jets in, in, in uh, along the way.
3: Basically, they want ways to keep America the hell away exactly. from their areas.
2: Precisely. Or what they claim are their areas,
3: right. which is right. to
0: say all of East Asia.
3: Right.
2: And uh, there are many other things we could talk about here, but the— considering this uh mini nuke on the submarine right this helps take away that problem like i said earlier the thousand or so mini nukes that we have are currently on planes so if we had them on submarines which are much harder to stop uh much harder to find and and doesn't really
3: i heard there was a hunt for one called red october once There was and so, uh
2: Alec Baldwin was a part of that
3: Great okay
2: uh, uh but like checking. it makes it and on top of that, it, has such a, it can shoot this missile with the mini-nuke on it from such a far Sorry, range. Sorry, can we
0: talk about the fact in that movie, Sean Connery plays the Russian submarine chief, and he has his Scottish accent the entire time?
2: Because why not? <laughs> just, I mean, I, I believed it. <laughs> I would, it's just,
0: sometimes I love that movie, but it would sometimes take me out of the movie when it's like jumping into a brogue in the middle of his, of his conversations <laughs> with Moscow it's like a or Russian, yeah, yeah, it com- really really
2: Russian Commander Barostakov. Oh, that was good. Thank Very you. good. Thank wow. You.
0: I'm impressed. Sorry, continue no. talking about serious things. Oh, uh,
2: fine. Uh, I'll do it in a Sean Connery accent No, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so like, the, just, just to recap here, or just to like, synthesize it, having this submarine that can shoot the this mini-nuke from so far away could help us with, uh, avoid that um, defense of China, right? Does
3: China have mini-nukes?
2: Uh, that's a great question. I, they don't have that many nuclear weapons, so I would be surprised. I wouldn't, I, I I know they have nukes and I don't think they're that big in terms of like kilotons, uh, but I don't think they have tactical, but I honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. I need to look that up.
0: The argument here is that as opposed to Russia, where we would be responding to their use of a nuclear weapon, in the case of China, the U.S. would be. Going first, right, as a way of countering China's conventional capabilities in its area, uh, that is to say the area that we'd want to be, let's say, defending Taiwan or Japan in the event of a war there, we'd use nuclear weapons to neutralize their defenses and allow us to get in and defend our ally.
2: Yeah. And, and, in fact, it, just to make a, uh, just one thing clear on the China, like, A280 thing, like, if you've ever seen those um, mov- movies of, like, you know, Alexander the Great with the formation of, like, the shields on top and the shields in front and then the spears out, like, that's kind of how I think of what China's doing. And then our plan here is just, well, what if we just from further away just dropped, like, a big thing on, on top of those shields right. and sort of, like, blew that defense up? Like, if you want to think of it an old-timey war thing, like, that's kind of the theory here.
3: Got it.
0: Okay, so the the, the phalanx theory. Uh, yeah, this is, theory. A, this
3: is okay. us throwing a Molotov cocktail really far over the phalanx. Yeah,
2: exactly. Like that That's kind of what the theory is.
0: Or in like non-anachronistic versions, what happened to the phalanx eventually is that uh, you had light infantry who could get in between the spheres. And I, I actually really know a lot about like early <laughs> pre-modern warfare. Phenomenal. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me
3: in any way, shape, or form, Zach. <laughs> all right, all
0: right, all right. So, sorry.
3: I have a question on this. And— and I, we talked about this a bit beforehand um, when this policy rolled out, Alex. And I was wondering, you know, how does this relate to North Korea? Because, you know, we've had stories recently and reports recently that uh, North Korea is, you know, developing submarines that could have nuclear weapons. There were pictures of Kim Jong-un walking near a submarine. Uh, so is any of this related to that? Is any related directly to North Korea or is that sort of like a secondary I don't know, benefit is the right word, but a, a secondary use for yeah, this. Yeah,
2: yeah, Before I get into that, I should just say quickly that the United States has not yet said that it would not— that, like, it is not committed to not using a nuclear weapon first in a conflict, right? This is a thing that— We some, have not
3: committed to no first use.
2: Correct. Yeah, I didn't want to say—I didn't want to go to the technical, but yes, yeah. that's right. No first use. So, uh— Meaning
3: we—it's still on the table that we would launch a nuke first.
2: Exactly. And so this is part of the reason why people worry about this mini-nuke. And, and the reason I bring this up is— you know, when in, in the theory of, like, oh, we should have this capability, we should put it on the sub, all of the talk, like, 99.8% of it was about, well, we need this for Russia because of the, the gap that we talked about earlier. Now that it's a policy, now that it's a thing— shockingly, and not shockingly, it's come up in like, oh, Iran war plans. Oh, North Korea war plans. Um, And so we've sort of seen it disseminate out into, oh, this could be a usable weapon in the case of basically a conflict with anybody. Um, Which Iran, of course, does not have a nuclear weapon. North Korea does. And this is – so it's, I guess, more important to think about the North Korean context. And one would assume, I guess, that the U.S. could – Uh, In the case of a war with North Korea, just kind of start off with one of these um, after a conventional bombing, if North Korea were to attack big, and then kind of see what happens. Or, you know, we could go with a a bigger weapon. But the point being is that, like, there is the worry that these are now more, quote-unquote, usable. Right. That the fact that they are lower— kilotons that there is the the threshold for using them is well lower and but that's so therefore because the start... worry
3: that's the point of these In, weapons too it, exactly, right exactly <laughs> yeah so it's it's kind of the same thing it's like a double edged sword like the entire point is to make it so where these are more usable hence making deterrence stronger because saying there's a lower threshold we will nuke you with a small nuke so don't mess with us essentially um but on the other hand because they're more usable they're thus more usable yeah. and scarier it's
0: a knife edge uh, it's Very worrying, right? And it gets to a point about military technology uh, that is is often confusing, right? Like when we talk about these technologies, oftentimes the issue is the policy, right? Like drones are a really classic example here. Like the U.S. could have used – You know, manned planes do the exact same thing that we've used drones to do uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan when it comes to killing various different Al-Qaeda-affiliated people. Um, Could have, though the drones are more efficient for it. So it's not not so much the technology reconfiguring policy as policy figuring out which technologies are most useful to employ them. But sometimes the very existence of the technologies changes the way that we think about our policy because it creates new – Openings and opportunities for us to redesign what we can do and in this case, it seems like the very fact of putting a low-yield nuclear weapon on a submarine causes us to think differently about what we could do in the event of a conflict with even Iran or North Korea. And that means the technology is literally reshaping the policy in right. these circumstances. I mean, obviously, there was the policy of putting it there in the first place, but it had second-order effects. And, and that worries me, right? Because as you're both saying, there's this idea of a nuclear taboo, that nuclear weapons should be something distinct, scarier, and terrifying that are kept out of ordinary war planning because they are so destructive and because the risks of their deployment are so high. Right. And so making them more thinkable and usable in this way seems to have a, a, a serious degrading effect on the untouchability of nuclear weapons overall and in in, in reintegrating them into normal military stuff. And that, that really worries me.
3: There's a famous book um, that people who study international relations have all read uh, called Thinking About the Unthinkable, which is about basically thinking about what nuclear war which would be unthinkable, think about what it would actually look like and how we would survive and things like that. This is essentially thinking about this becoming thinkable, right? Making nuclear war thinkable again so that it it could actually be usable nuclear weapons that we are deploying against each other. And that is really scary, no matter how you slice it.
2: And I think, so springboarding off of this, I think therefore it's important to, I was somewhat lenient on the Trump administration in the first half. It's worth criticizing here in the second half because it has, as Jen alluded to earlier, purposefully dismantled the arms control architecture that it took decades and decades to build. Um, we are thinking about... So, it is as... Basically, as of now, we are officially under a year from when the New START Treaty goes away. And that treaty, just to simplify things, like, it makes it so the the kinds of nukes that we can put on missiles and, like, send to each other, the kinds of uh, nukes that we can have, those are curtailed. Um, we've talked already on a previous episode about the... Uh, INF treaty and how that's basically gone. And to be fair, Russia was cheating on that. But still, like that's gone. The open Skies Treaty, which basically allows the u s. and Russia to check in on each other uh, through the sky, and like, see if we're developing anything just for just to build confidence, that seems to be on the table to go away as well. And the more this goes away, you like you're you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right. And it's going to be near impossible to build this up again. And this leads to worries about an arms race. And and uh, like I said earlier, there is kind of one already happening. But any barrier is a good barrier at this point. There are generally some fair reasons to consider criticizing the way we've built up the, uh, like the certain uh, treaties themselves. But I think in totality, they're good. In totality, they are good because they keep the U.S. and Russia from going at each other's throats with nuclear weapons.
3: So I'm going to play devil's advocate here and ask a question, which is, you know, if you think back to the Cold War architecture with, you know, when we had— you know, mutual assured destruction, right? We each have really powerful, thousands of very powerful nukes that could essentially obliterate each other, uh, us and the Soviet Union. And so because of that, you know, we didn't get into direct armed conflict. But what we did is we fought proxy conflicts all over the world. And this low-level, you know, but still horrific, you know, civil wars and intervening in each other's areas, I guess the, the counterpoint would be if we do have tactical nukes, we have these mini-nukes, would it make that kind of competition less likely now? Because if those are usable at a lower level, you know, we also don't want to get each other mad. So we we also won't mess in your neighborhood and you won't mess around in ours. Is it possible that could limit some kind of that conflict?
2: Sure, that's the theory. Right. right? That's the theory of all of this, is that ha- having this mini-nuke makes other conflicts less likely and— uh But I I just don't believe in the rationality of leaders. I think – I'm also persuaded by Zach's point, uh, and I think history bears this out, that if you build technologies, we end up finding ways to use them or at least justifying their use Uh, and – Look, I wish the US had invested in other capabilities instead of the mini nuke. Like, I'm totally down for more cyber capabilities. I'm down for um, you know, take this money away from mini nukes and and uh you can repair a bit of our aging nuclear uh arsenal already. You could invest in other sort of conventional capabilities, whatever it may be. I I just don't think this was something that we needed. Uh this is kind of going back to the future for the future and I I am I am more worried than satisfied by this policy decision. To be fair,
3: going Back to the Future for the Future was the plot of Back to the Future.
2: Yeah,
0: that's – The word future is now losing all meaning to me in the way that we're saying it quickly. But Jen, another another point about that is that the design of these weapons, the strategic design of them, not the like physical technological Mm -hmm. design, kind of countermands what you're describing. They're only supposed to be used in the event that a conflict – like a direct conflict – has already broken out, right? No one is going to be concerned about uh, toppling a Russian-friendly leader. And we're not like in that Cold War paradigm, but in a world where that sort of thing would happen. Looking at it
3: in practicality, like Syria right now, right? The U.S. troops are there. Russian troops are also there. Uh, and there's an article out today that we were talking about before the show uh, that says that they're encountering each other. <laughs> it's an interesting word to use. But uh, they're coming into contact more frequently. And that's worrisome because you have the U.S. and Russia in the same country, in a third country. And, you know, the fear there is that you know they could – it could escalate, right? They, there could be an accident or they – you know, Russian troops fire on American troops and then we fire back and then it escalates. So in that context, how do you see – The the mini-nuke becoming, you know, activated. Right, but
0: what I was trying to say is that the mini-nuke doesn't serve as a barrier to escalation any more so than conventional nukes do in a scenario like that, right? They are likely – as likely to escalate and to get into a shooting war as a result of misperceptions and miscalculations with like this extra added padded level of deterrence Mm -hmm. as they are with – without it, and only a straight up deterrence to bigger nuclear weapons, right? Like ultimately that's the scary thing and the thing that wants to push both sides to de-escalate. There's no reason for me to believe that having something in the middle, at least nothing I no plausible argument I can think of that having something in the middle there would prevent a scenario like that, like I don't know, a um, Russian military contractor gets killed by an American special forces operator. The Russians retaliate and so on, prevent that from escalating full scale conflict.
2: And I actually have a process worry here that builds off of this. So, as of now, I am unsure whether using the mini nuke requires like the president's approval. I would assume so, I'm like 95% oh, confident. Oh, no, you
0: think this might be delegated to battlefield commanders? Well,
2: the, no, right, the right,
3: Moab was. The
2: Moab was I mean, that was the 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 US Trump commander in Afghanistan, uh, John Nicholson, General Nicholson at the time, he's the one that chose to drop it. I am like 95 to 100% sure that Trump would have to authorize it. But I could assume in the future right? That because we have, well, there are bigger nuclear weapons and maybe, and since we have smaller ones, it might be worth, a future president can say, I'm going to delegate anything from like five kilotons down to the commander. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't, but like, that's plausible. Like, I I don't know how, yeah, I'm not sure how, like, how the potential of that, but like, that's a concern I might have. And by, and by might, I mean, I do, (laughs) uh, like I could imagine, you know, I don't think Trump would, do that. I mean, he has been giving tons of authority to military commanders. Um, I don't think he would probably say, you know, if you're the CENTCOM commander or whatever it may be, you can decide to use this against Iran if you want to. I don't think he would do that.
0: But you can imagine President Tom Cotton in 2028
2: doing it. Yeah, I could imagine a future president being like, yeah, seriously, like anything five kilotons down, or even like, you know, one kiloton down, even whatever it may be, like, That's the commander's responsibility, in which case we could have a future in which, like, the president only has uh, oversight authority over the big stuff and we could start kind of using smaller nukes throughout battlefields. I know that's dystopian and it's kind of scary, but, like, I don't think the chance of that is zero percent.
3: Well, that's the kind of thing you need to think through when you're radically changing a nuclear posture, right? You need to think through the longer-term consequences and how you're going to deploy these weapons. So I think it's important to talk through that.
2: Yeah, and again, like, I know we have these on planes already, and, like, so I'm not saying... I'm just saying the, the more you put them on... On more platforms and the more ubiquitous they become, the, the the fewer restrictions there are and I could imagine a president kind of thinking through this scenario.
0: Uh, that does get to something that you were saying yesterday, Alex, when we were preparing the show that I thought was uh, really interesting, which is that it's the uh, – it's part of an overall Trump administration policy, this, this mini-nuke-on-a-sub thing. Of giving the military whatever it wants. Like, this seems like something that I, I, the Navy wanted. I don't know which branch, I, all the whole military. Wanted. I mean,
2: the, the, it was the DoD, DOD review. Okay.
0: All right. So, something that the military in general wanted. And they got it. Right. And it seems like that's happened a few times where the military will request something from Trump and then he's just like, fine, whatever. Right. So, you get this overall policy of not sort of civilian control over the military when it comes to technological and and physical capabilities. It's the military just, like, deciding what it should have and then getting it.
2: Yeah, I I still really—I mean, there are a couple of instances where Trump has said, like, I don't want the military to have this. He seems to believe that, like, digital catapults are bad and steam catapults are good.
3: Uh, Trump is very steampunk.
2: He's very steampunk. But, like, other than that, you know, the military wanted a lot more money. By gosh, they got it under Trump. Uh, The military wanted— authority on the battlefield to kind of to be decentralized from the White House. And I, I think one could argue it got uber centralized in the Obama administration. But like Trump has completely disseminated. It. He's basically given commanders total authorization to do what they want. That's how we got the mother of all bombs use um, in Afghanistan, for example. Um, now, as of last week, for example, uh, the military did this review and said it would be good to have landmines in war again, um, right in the Obama administration. He restricted their use. Um, outside of the Korean, outside of the Korean Peninsula, the, the reason is, uh, the, of course, people are still worried that North Korean, the North Korean military, could come over the thirty eighth parallel, and so we need the landmines to stop them. Alex Uh,
3: broke that story, by the way. We'll link to it in the show notes.
2: Now now the military, if a commander decides we could use a landmine in this battle space, uh, they can use it. And landmines are, like, not that useful. And they hurt civilians. And we haven't really used it in war since 1991. But, like, the military said it's something that we could use because we can't replicate this capability. And so Trump just gave it to them.
3: So I think part of me, you know, wonders, uh, and this, you know, is a little bit more far afield, but... You know, we haven't had a commander-in-chief who has served in the military. Uh, Trump went to military school, uh, which is very much not the same thing. It's like one of those, you know, reform schools. Um, But he didn't serve in Vietnam. He had— Bone spurs. Bone spurs that allowed him to avoid the draft. And we haven't had a, you know, a military veteran in the White House for quite a long time. And I, I wonder if part of this, I mean, obviously there's a difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, so it's not totally down to that. But I wonder if, you know, having someone who does actually understand military capabilities better rather than someone, you know, like Trump or Obama, either way, that that doesn't, you know, either sees these weapons all as, you know, dangerous or sees some of the stuff as all, you know, the U.S. military is all bad or all good. You can have everything you want. You know, someone who better understands it would be useful to have in the White House. I'm not advocating for any, any candidate or anything. I'm just wondering. No
0: military test for serving in office.
3: Right, right, exactly. But I'm just wondering if part of the the kind of civilian control of the military, you know, I'm wondering, do you think that would help?
2: I think it's always good to have some understanding. I don't think you have to have served. Uh, I mean, I I think, I think arguably what the consensus best foreign policy president, at least in in the expert community, would be George H.W. Bush. And he did serve uh, in the Navy, if my memory is correct. But we've had plenty of good foreign policy presidents that did not. And I don't think that's a requirement. But I think you, if you want to be the commander in chief, you do need to have some familiarity with these kinds of things. And I think a president should be willing to say that, the, should be willing to understand that the military is kind of an interest group. They, Of course, they want right. certain things, right? They're going to want more power. They're going to want yeah, more Yeah, that's more what I'm
3: thinking is like Trump seems to be, I don't want to say compensating, but I mean, you know, he doesn't have any military background whatsoever. He, you know, doesn't even have government background. And he's very much, you know, trying to show I'm very big and strong in national security. You know, I'm Republican. I'm very big and strong on this. So the military can have anything. If you listen to his speeches, he says, you know, over and over again, lately, you know, I've rebuilt our great military. We're the strongest in the world. You know, so that is part of his, you know, entire kind of campaign shtick. So, Giving the military everything they want fits in with that, but whether or not that's a great idea is a different question.
0: And then it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the 2020 campaign, uh, especially given the fairly strong divergence between certain Democratic candidates on how to think and talk about the military. Um, So I imagine we'll be coming back to Trump's defense policy at one point. But for now, that's where we're going to leave it. Uh, I want to thank our engineer, Bridget Armstrong, our producer, Jackson Bierfeld. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all.
3: Bye.